Hello, and welcome to the latest Construction Insider podcast, where we bring construction firms the strategies and tactics they need to succeed. I'm here with our host, Brent Chambers, Executive Vice President of Capital Plus Construction Services, and we have a special guest today, Mike Matusik. He's a commercial banking officer with FMB Bank in Chattanooga. Mike has spent nearly two decades working in both commercial banking and in construction-related industries. Before joining FNV, he was a CFO for a construction firm where he oversaw a period of 100% revenue growth and the formation of three additional construction-related businesses. He has also worked in commercial finance at Pinnacle Financial Partners and BB&T. Brent and Mike will be discussing construction financing from the banker's perspective. So Brent, I'll turn it over to you. Well, Lisa, thank you for the introduction. And uh, I'd like to say good morning to Mike and welcome to the the Construction Insider Podcast. Mike, I've got to share with you that I'm always excited to to have a, a guest speaker on our show, but but I'm especially pleased to have a guest that's not only as a banking background and as a banker, but who has worked in the construction space as well. So your background gives you a unique ability to discuss financing in the construction space And and again, I'm just excited to have you here. So if you're ready, let's dive in. Good morning. Thanks. I'm happy to be here and uh, really looking forward to participating. So, Mike, the first question is related to the banking community and, you know, the fact that they see the construction space is very risky. I know that, you know, working with a referral network and the referral network is lenders that are traditional and non-traditional and we're we're always talking on the phone with these guys and most every discussion we have with a new prospect, we hear them tell us something like, or say something like, boy, I'm glad you guys are here. You know, it's good to know that there's folks that will land in construction because we just won't do it. It's, it's too risky. So put your finance hat, your banker's hat on. And if you want to answer the question, why is it that most lenders see construction as overly risky and they avoid you know, lending in the space? Sure. And for any bankers or financiers listening, you know, just to kind of differentiate, you know, there's construction loans and lending to construction companies. And I think we're going to be focusing on lending to construction companies or contractors specifically. That's correct. And the reason I want to point that out is both have elements of credit risk and operational risk, which are higher than in other sort of lending products. But the key differentiator is control. So when a bank is providing the actual construction loan, we have a great deal of control over the process, over how the funds are dispersed and spent. When we're lending to construction companies, though, I think banks have a lack of control that presents a paramount risk issue. The reason I say that is unless bankers work exclusively in construction or do it a lot, it's very easy to not understand the finer points of structure, documentation, process and perfection of the security interest. And bankers are thus reliant on tribal knowledge and internal processes to manage that kind of risk. And unless those internal processes are very well-defined, established, and enforced through some back office functions, then there's probably a lot more risk being taken than the bank is aware of. And I think management is aware of that. And it makes them very skittish because I've found 
that management typically has very long memories when it comes to losses on construction loans and loans to contractors. So the lack of control is really important because the bank is not really aware of the details concerning the source of repayment, which is progress billings, and can potentially be structurally subordinate to several other players that the bank just has no influence over. One of the things that we hear routinely, wherever we are out in in the space talking with, especially with our referral network, the thing that comes up most of the time is they don't like or they don't do progress billing. So can you explain to the audience why progress billing spooks the lenders? Sure. And I think just for our conversation, you know, if we just want to come up with kind of a hypothetical example to keep referring back to, you know, if we've got a, a basic case of a $100,000 contract and a progress billing at 10% complete, that becomes a $10,000 receivable for a construction contractor. So there's several things about that receivable that makes banks uncomfortable lending against them. And like I said, you'll hear me say this a lot. First among those is lack of control. A banker funding to a contractor against that $10,000 receivable has no control over matching up sources and uses of funds, which would be you know, materials purchased, subcontractors employed, and contractors are notorious across the industry for robbing Peter to pay Paul. And a banker is not going to know for sure that their loan funds being advanced against that receivable are going to pay for all the vendors and subcontractors associated with that particular project. So, Mike, let me let me interject here. So when you say they rob Peter to pay Paul, what you mean, what I think you mean is that they're taking funds from one project, even one debtor, one, you know, one job and using it for another. Is that correct? Yes. And, you know, again, just to actually use a hypothetical example, I mean, if you're submitting a progress bill on the 25th of the month and you're getting paid 30 days later, you know, as soon as that cash comes in, you may be using it to pay invoices, bills or subcontractor invoices for something from the previous month. And so, you know, now if I'm in the banker's shoes and I'm advancing money against that $10,000 that was just invoiced to the contractor's client and the money's right back out the door to cover another project and for some reason something goes sideways, then now I'm presented with some risk that I was not intending on taking. I would interject at this point in time when, as a lender in the space in receivables financing, when we purchase a receivable, we make sure that we take funds control and we're going to pay all the subs and suppliers on that particular invoice just to avoid that. So that's a great point. And and the only way we can get comfortable is for us to pay those subs and suppliers so that down chain, we don't have anybody that's going to file you know, mechanics lien and put our receivable you know, in jeopardy. Absolutely. I mean, construction is a very opaque process. And you know, progress billings are a claim on money, work, some economic value. And that value is predicated on several things occurring in a usual and customary way. And what you just described, Brent, is how it should work. But the Absent y'all taking that kind of control, which a bank typically won't, then there's no control over that usual and customary activity. And 
that kind of opacity, I think, speaks again to the broader lack of understanding and knowledge about construction and the contracting process the bankers just don't have unless they're doing it all the time. Because, I mean, I know y'all do this stuff nationwide. You know, construction is a separate body of law governed by each individual state, even across different trades and different types of projects. You're right. Now, you mentioned opacity, and obviously that means hard to see into, hard to, hard to see through. I believe that's what you meant earlier when you said bankers live by tribal knowledge and not being able to see into that process, they're not comfortable. Yeah. So I think first you're, you're reliant on what your client is telling you. And most clients are always going to tell you what they think you want to hear or whatever's going to allow them to keep doing what it is that they want to do. So you're very reliant on what they're telling you. If you did actually try and peel back all the layers of the onion, you can probably arrive at the answer, but you're going to work very, very hard to do it. And you're going to spend a lot of time doing it, which goes back to kind of a cost issue is the amount of time and money you'd spend doing that versus the earnings you're making on that loan probably don't match up. And again, the level of risk, if you did discover something that isn't going the way you wanted it to, is is not commensurate with what you originally underwrote. That makes absolute sense. So is there anything else with regards to progress billing that jumps out that just you, you think spooks them? Yes. And there's kind of two factors there. And one of them, I think, is that a progress billing really isn't worth a whole lot until it is accepted by the general contractor if you're loaning to a sub or the owner if you're loaning to a general contractor. And once that is accepted, it then becomes payable. And there can be a material lag in timing between submission of those progress billings and that acceptance by whoever ultimately approves it and then having it become paid. So again, looking at the opacity into it and not really knowing what you're looking at. As a lender, I wouldn't know if my client who's a subcontractor isn't being paid by the GC if, say, that progress billing is disputed because either the subcontractor isn't performing and there's a dispute over quality of workmanship or the amount being billed, or if it's simply the general contractor trying to beat up on all the subs to make up for some cost overrun that happened somewhere else and their change order isn't being approved by the owner and they've got to squeeze those savings out of the total budget somewhere. Unless I'm making the phone calls to the GC and understanding that, I'm just not going to know that. And in either case, my progress billing, which is my collateral, isn't going to turn over and convert to cash as expected. And if there's one thing that you can rely on banks to not like, it's things not going as expected. And then one other possibility is that a great contractor, a really good contractor is going to have billings in excess of costs, and they're going to be using that as a form of working capital. But those liabilities can ultimately turn into true costs that are unintended. And when that happens, the bank probably won't know there's a problem until it's probably already too big to contain. Let me interject. Sorry to interrupt you, but you've got an accounting background, a banking background, and I suspect that there are info listeners that really don't understand what billings 
in excess of cost is. So before you go forward, can you explain this to the audience? And I think you're also where you see that is in the balance sheet, correct? That's correct. So going back to our example of a $100,000 contract and billing 10% against it for an invoice of $10,000, a billing in excess of cost item would be where that $10,000 has been billed based on 10% completion of the total contract amount, but the actual costs that were either estimated or known at the time when that contract was set up, the costs incurred are significantly less. So that could be something as simple as you as the sub are allowed to bill for materials once submittals are approved or once drawings are complete and you may be preparing shop drawings. You could be doing any number of things which don't actually have any sort of requirement to purchase materials, but you're allowed to bill for them at that time. So now you've got $10,000 coming in, but your actual costs may have been significantly less than the costs associated with that line item. And now you have a billing in excess of the cost, and that becomes a source of financing. It's cash in your pocket that isn't associated with an actual vendor, a material, a subcontractor supplier. So like we said earlier, robbing Peter to pay Paul, you've now got on that particular project some excess cash that can be used to float something else, to provide the initial funding you need for a new contract. So you know it can be used to fund growth. But if you've got a contractor that's growing very, very quickly and is using their billings and excess working capital to do other things or potentially using it to fund a project that's underwater, those billings in excess, when it actually comes time to order those materials, can be a real cost. And it may come out of nowhere and it will surprise everyone. So it comes down to marrying marrying up your costs that are associated with that specific revenue. And that's something that a banker cannot see. That's right. I would assume that probably the you know, the biggest hiccup, you know, let's just say the really bad day in a banker's life is when a uh, contractor gets upside down and you're looking at uh, liquidation or some type of collection effort. That's right. So if we're sticking to the example I just described, you know, where there was some working capital generated from a project due to billings in excess or you know, any number of other things where the funds that were used on a project went to somebody else. And now the subs of my client are not being paid. The vendors from my client are not being paid on the contract, which they have billed for. And I have provided funding on. And now those subs or those material men are putting liens out on, on the project until those liens are cleared the GC or the owner is likely not going to actually pay on that progress billing, which means, again, you know, my collateral is not going to convert to cash. And the only way for me as the lender to clear that is to throw good money after bad and to lend more money in so that they can pay those subs, pay those material men and get the liens cleared and get that progress billing paid. 
But, you know, again, that's not what was anticipated. That's not what I underwrote. And, you know, progress billings, because of that, have very little tangible value to anyone else except the contractor who's billing them. And I think if you were to look at like your RMA statement studies and kind of see the typical ratios and numbers for contractors, you're going to see that most of them don't have much else in the way of unencumbered assets or products and inventory that can be liquidated. And kind of tying all that together, it means that most contractors don't have much in the way of going concern value if they were ever to get into some serious trouble. For the listeners, I think what you mean by going concern, you, the banker, is having to assume that there's some value associated with the company being able to stay upright, stay in business, and be profitable, correct? Yes. So if someone else were to step into the ownership of that company, what value would it have? And that means total assumption of all the assets and liabilities. And if you've got a couple of projects or even one big one that is going underwater or sideways, like we're talking about, speaking back to the opacity in the whole process, there might not be anyone willing to take on or assume those liabilities. They might want to cherry pick some things and buy assets, but not necessarily buy the entire company. And so it's also tied to to basically goodwill. All right. So, Mike, you know, as a lender in the construction space, we know that traditional lenders are are wary of construction firms and of the construction space itself simply because of the risk. However, we also know that many of the construction firms, our clients, are actually wary of the banking community. Now, having been in finance in a construction firm, what is it about the banks and you know and, and other traditional lenders that cause them concern? Well, so you know, just speaking to my experience, you know, I was not particularly wary of the banks, and I think indeed the ones that I worked with, we had a great relationship because I knew that they could be your best friend and ally because I knew the position they were coming from. But I understand that from the inside looking out that there is a lot of hesitation and probably a self-reinforcing loop of that wariness to an extent. Contractors wary of banks because banks are wary of contractors. If you look at the Great Recession period when you had a lot of contractors had business with banks, and then after the housing market collapsed, those banks simply just turned off the spigot and said, we're not lending into this space anymore, no matter if you're performing or not. And that probably left a lot of people very raw. And banks love control. So if you give them or allow them to wrap everything up and get it under control, banks can make portfolio level decisions and shut down either construction lending or loaning to contractors. And that can be devastating because it can simply mean your business stops functioning. And I won't say that that happens infrequently. I mean, it does. So if a bank does end up stepping in and trying to provide financing and be a a financing partner, they're going to want to take control over everything and wrap their arms around all the assets of the business for collateral purposes. And that will invariably limit a contractor's flexibility. And they're probably going to get sideways with each other because it will be one issue that might be a violation of a covenant or an event of default, and the bank may waive it or 
turn their head on the first time and say, okay, well, we understand what happened here. And the second time they may say, okay, well, that's too many strikes for us. We're out. We want all of our money back. And before you know it, you know, contractors not making payroll. So to illustrate your point in terms of banks making portfolio level decisions, we we had a client yesterday that that walked in the door, you know, a strong performance. They had they had uh, one year where they had a big project loss, but other than that, cash positive, you know, making good profits. Quite frankly, when I first looked at the data, I'm sitting here wondering why are you guys coming to us? And so when we finally got down to brass tacks, I asked the question, well. Well, why is the bank trying to work you out? And the comment was the bank has just decided as a company to get out of the construction lending space. And here you had a, quite frankly, one of the the better clients that we get to see from time to time. And that decision left these guys without any financing and in the middle of a pandemic when everybody's, you know, everybody's quite frankly got their tails tucked quite a bit. So it does happen. And I think that does create that loop that you're talking about. Yeah. And that's you know very unfortunate because I can tell you with certainty on this, that those decisions are not made by the actual bankers that those companies are dealing with. People like me who are just knocking on doors, trying to develop relationships, you know, those sorts of things are being made just in the bank boardroom. And it's just an unfortunate nature of the industry in the same way that, you know, contractors and owners have to do what I said earlier about sometimes you got to squeeze budget savings out here and there because something happened in the project that nobody could have anticipated and it made costs go up. It's just one of those things that's unique to construction and you've got to know about that in order to manage your risk. Yeah, you're right. It is, un- it, it is unfortunate. Moving on here, time and time again, we we have construction firms that approach us, obviously, for cash flow support, and they already have a bank line of credit. Now, in most instances, the banks are not interested in working with us through an intercreditor agreement or some other agreement, and they simply want us to take them out. In fact, we wanted to finance one of the construction firms you were working with, and that's how we, you know, we were introduced but the bank would not cooperate. And I know that was frustrating for you and it was frustrating for us. We tell all of our clients and we, we told you at that time, we're, we're bridge financing. We're constantly explaining to our clients that our goal is to help them over that financial hump. And that financial hump can be financial stress from a project or projects or a series of things, or that stress can be growth in, in the eyes of a banker and they're growing too fast. And we, just can't get comfortable. But our job is to get them you know, back to bank money. And, and you would think the banks would want to work with us to achieve that, but they don't. So why do you think banks are not willing to work with the factory? I think the answer comes down to control. Once again, you know, if there's another party in there and, and you guys as the factor are going to be, you know, structurally in front of a bank, because of what you do. And I think that is, you know, again, a matter of control and and gives banks just, it just spooks them. The other answer is that I think banks probably don't really understand the factoring arrangement on a fundamental basis. And I admit to not really getting it until I sat down with you guys to get underwritten. I've worked at banks that had factoring 
agents and portfolios before. And, you know, we occasionally sold those products, but I confess I never really understood it. So if you combine lack of control with not really understanding, it's very easy for a banker to get to no pass. Well, that's a good point. And I think it is control because we there are a handful of banks that we do work with. And after we've worked with them for a while, they will inevitably tell us that it was a great experience. We bring to the table an understanding of construction, contracts, things that they wouldn't know to look for. That's that part of that. That's opacity that you were talking about. And once they work with us, they step back and say, hey, this relationship is actually a risk mitigator. But unfortunately, we've, we're just going to have to get you know, that message out over and over again before we hopefully change their thinking. So we're running short time. We try to keep these to 15 to 20 minutes to keep our, our audience engaged. And we're going to have to wrap it up here. But there's one nagging question that I have to ask. Construction lending is risky. And we've pointed this out here. And we know this. But Capital Plus offers a product, a solution in sort in the construction space that few can provide. Now, to cover this risk, the cost of our financing is higher than what you would you see with a traditional lending entity or bank. And that cost turns many away. Do you, having having been in you know in finance, in banking and construction, do you have any thoughts on this? I do. And I would quote Warren Buffett and say that price is what you pay but value is what you get. And you're right, a factoring arrangement does look expensive if you're used to comparing pricing for plain vanilla credit products. The APR of a factoring arrangement is going to be much higher than the APR on a traditional bank line of credit. But I think the value of being able to access your working capital in a timely manner when you need it the most exceeds whatever that cost is going to be because the cost of not doing it could result in you know, vendor relationships getting shut down for a period of time. And that could have downstream effects on scheduling, on performance of contracts and everything else. I mean, contracting is a business with a very chunky revenue stream. You get paid in big dollar amounts a couple of times a month, but your expenses are much smoother. So you're juggling a lot of obligations and you're usually carrying a lot of costs well ahead of those revenues being billed, much less actually being collected. So any equity that most of your contractors have is tied up in working capital. And the factoring arrangement allows you to unlock that equity when needed. Because again, I'd want to just you know make sure that all your listeners know The great thing about factoring arrangement is it's a when needed type of arrangement. You know, if you have a really big invoice, a really big contract, you don't have to factor everything. You can just factor that one and you're only paying for what you use. And I think that's a lot more flexibility than you get from a bank in a traditional arrangement. And again, never knowing what's going to happen when a pandemic strikes and banks are tightening up, having that kind of flexibility, there's a lot of value there. Well, I appreciate you saying that, and I may have to go back and turn this into a some type of a presentation or an advertisement per se. You're, <laughs> Testimonial. You're right. uh, yeah, absolutely. I could not have said it better. We do un- unlock that equity, and we can do that in the form of you know a spot factor where you pick and choose a invoice 
to factor because I have this immediate you know, need for some cash flow support, or you can contract a or factor a contract, an entire job and all the invoices on that job because that one particular job, the way it's laid out, the way the billing is called out by the GC, it's going to be a cash flow drain. At the end of the job, it's going to be profitable. Obviously, it's what their hope is, but it just drains cash. And then we have what we would call the factoring facility. It's a revolver, and that's the bridge finance, where a bank walks away for whatever reason, whether it's a portfolio decision or whether they just they couldn't get comfortable with the growth. And we factor for a period of time. And when we factor like that, we typically give more aggressive and competitive rates. But we do that until they can get back to a traditional lender and get back to cheaper money. But yeah, I'm glad you said that. Spot factoring through, you know, through uh, you know, factoring facility is, I mean, it's a broad range of, of options for, for our clientele. So, Mike, we're going to have to wrap it up there. I want, I want to thank you for your time and your, your, you know, your chatting with My me pleasure. today. I will say to the audience, you know, when you came to us looking for you know, some working capital, we really enjoyed working with you and you, we knew you understood the business and I knew that you would just be a great uh, you know, guest speaker you know, on our podcast. So I learned some things from you today and I know that our audience has learned things as well. So I'm going to ask you a favor and put you on the spot and ask you, you know, to join me here. There's a lot of topics with regards to lending in the construction space and I'd love to continue this discussion on another Put day. Put me in, Coach. I'm down. All right. We will. You are you are on the roster. So, Lisa, we're going to wrap it up there. I'll kick it back to you. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you both. We appreciate your insight and your time today. If listeners would like more information, they can reach us at CapitalPlus.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Construction Insider. And until next time, be well. <laughs>